Hello, and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. Now, the series is called Life of Christ, but we've almost been in a mini-series within our series, if that makes sense. And we're talking about the three pillars of Jesus' faith. What we find in Matthew 6 is Jesus talks about three specific spiritual disciplines, and I don't think it's an accident, the order they're in, and I don't think the three things that he chose, he chose, uh, you know, blatantly, I think there was intentionality there. There's something to be found. And one, he says righteousness, which we found out was charity. Uh, Week two, we talked about prayer, sanctifying the name of God. And then three, this week, we're talking about fasting, or at least that's what we're supposed to talk about. So, um, you can find that verse. You can find that verse in Matthew six. I want you guys to flip to Isaiah forty with me, if you wouldn't mind. But in Matthew sixteen through eighteen, Jesus's teachings are consistent with fasting. He says, "Don't be like the hypocrites, you know." And they they make it obvious on their face that they're fasting. For those who don't know, it's abstaining from food, and you know they do it to be seen and they do it to be noticed. He talks about just like your giving, just like your prayer, your fasting. Do it and do it in private. Don't do it for the praise of man. Do it in your pursuit of God. So we'll get there. Um, but this is our key scripture this morning, Isaiah forty. Verse 3, I believe through 5, it says this. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, part of the language we use in this house is um, a punch and a hug, okay? A punch and a hug. And it's this whole idea, John 1.14 says, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, where, yes, we are supposed to be kind to each other and loving and graceful, but it's also unkind to not share the truth. But that doesn't mean that the truth is going to make us feel warm and fuzzy, right? So I really believe for us to effectively love one another, we got to punch and hug one another, Okay, that's just grace and truth. We, we got to bring it in. I really believe this message this morning is definitely a punch. There is a hug too, but, but I, I think if we lean in this morning, this could be transformative in, in our walk with Jesus. I really believe that. Might be, might be a little painful as we get there, but, but I think it will be good. I'm expectant for that. Okay, does that sound all right? Yeah. All right, y'all scared? Don't be. Let's pray. Let's pray. What I've actually found, believe it or not, is, is I do that like every week, don't I? But what I've found is sometimes preachers are hesitant to preach things that are sometimes concerning or, or, or truthful, you know, the, the parts of scripture that aren't so sexy. And uh, what I've found is the church actually finds it refreshing. And I, and I think the reason that the church wants to hear the truth is because there's freedom to be found in the truth. So we're, we're going to preach the good, the bad, and the ugly because at the end of the day, it's all good and it's all Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And uh, Father, I pray right now as we're in this moment that you would begin to till the soil of our heart. God, I pray as the seed of your word goes forth that it would land in our fertile hearts, it would grow to produce fruit in our lives, that we would experience real transformation by the power of your word. We don't want to just listen to it. We want to hear it and do it. 
We want to be people full of faith, faith that's full of action. Would you do that? Allow us to experience transformation to be more like Jesus in your holy and mighty name. Amen. So I, I think we can all agree there's a little bit of mystery in fasting. If you don't know, fasting is refraining from food for a period of, period of time, not because you want to lose weight or go on a diet, but, but for spiritual reasons, withholding food you know, to, to allow your flesh to burn a little bit. But if we were to ask our fellow believers in the room and, and have conversation right now of what is fasting and why do we fast, I, I think you may experience a collage of answers. I think, and you may even experience, you may even hear a couple, I don't know, like I'm not really familiar with fasting to begin with, but we see Jesus in Matthew 6 say to his disciples, when you fast, which implies that Jesus assumed his disciples would fast. This, This is a spiritual discipline they would commonly practice. So I think it's crucial though for us, and my goal this morning is to not just talk about the act of fasting, and what that was, we, we know that was refraining from food. But I, I think that it's even more imperative that we talk about what fasted represented and why was fasting important and why was that a spiritual discipline in the first place, okay? I'm gonna try not to put y'all asleep in the first half of this message, but I feel like this is one of those where half the room's gonna lean in, you know, my, my people who love the word, and then some of y'all might check out. So I'm gonna do my best to keep, keep y'all in here, uh, but we're gonna get a little deep. We're gonna take a little venture back to the Old Testament. Is that okay? Here we go. I want to talk about the Day of Atonement, okay? Somebody's already like, oh, man. No, this is good. How many know that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed? So we can read through the Old Testament and see things about the New Testament, and and they connect, and then we can read things in the New Testament that are reflections of the Old Testament, and and we really discover that there was one author to this whole thing called the Holy Spirit, and it's the best story ever told. Amen? So as, as we peer back into the Old Testament, before Jesus ever walked this earth, God was still making himself known to mankind. And we see that in the Old Testament. He was still making himself known to humanity. And he had specifically set apart his Jewish people where that's where the majority of his interaction took place with. And the ancient Jewish people, they knew God. They were aware of his glory. They were aware of his majesty. They were aware of his power. But more than that, they were aware of their spiritual condition and how broken and unfit they were to stand in his presence. They knew that. Regardless of where you fall in mankind, we all have this issue of sin. We're broken and we're messed up and God's perfect and that's the story, right? It's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm unworthy to be in your presence. I'm unworthy to interact with you. The Jews recognized they were sinful and they recognized that they needed saving from their sins. So throughout the weeks and months of the years, what Jews were commanded to do is make all different types of sacrifices to cover the different types of sins they would commit. This was happen on a weekly basis and even on a monthly basis. But these sacrifices and offerings that they would make to God were only temporary band-aids that simply weren't sufficient enough to keep humanity in right standing with God continually. That's what we find out. So once a year, the Jews took part in what was called the Day of Atonement. This is also known as Yom Kippur. And on this day, once a year, a high priest, the highest 
ranking most spiritual person of the bunch. You know, he, he had uh, this grand duty of making an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the people in Israel. This happened once a year. And as I read on it, I, I guess kind of the Jewish thought behind this idea is, yes, we, we have our little sacrifices along the way, but this sacrifice would cover us until the next day of atonement the following year. This keeps our names in God's Lamb Book of Life. Okay, that, that's some of the thought here. Um, the purpose of this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was to repair this broken relationship between God and his people by covering the sins of everyone involved. And on this Day of Atonement, uh, there's multiple moving parts. There's uh, full of religious ritual uh, you know, this was the only day of the year that the high priest would enter into the temple and enter the innermost room that we know of as the holies of holies, where God's presence would dwell. And he had to do a, he had to do perform a bunch of rituals before he could even go in there and find security. He had to perform a ceremonial washing. He had to dress a specific way. There were uh, he had to perform specific acts related to sprinkling blood in the room and carrying incense. And it was this you know they approached the presence of God with great reverence and, and great fear, you know, making sure that everything was done right so they could, ha this, everything could go as planned and as smoothly. And then in grand ceremony, the high priest would take two goats and they'd cast lots and they would offer, they would sacrifice one of the goats as a sin offering to God to cover the sins of the people. Then they would take the other goat and the high priest would lay his hand on the other goat. He would confess the sins of Israel and then they'd have someone take the goat into the wilderness, release it, and it, and it would, this is where we get the expression, a scapegoat. It would essentially, this would, would carry their sins away. That's what we see. So this was a common practice year after year that the Jews would do, but then in 70 AD, something happened that forced the Jews to pivot. Couldn't look like it always looked anymore. In 70 AD, their temple is destroyed, so they can't perform everything they once performed. Now they have to do something else. They no longer could present the required sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. It couldn't look like it always looked. So with no temple, right, what they did instead was they observed Yom Kippur. They observed the Day of Atonement as a day of repentance and self-denial and of fasting. Saying, God, I'm going I'm to humble myself and, and acknowledge you. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humble myself. I'm gonna, we're we're going we're gonna to refrain. We're going we're gonna to honor you. We're going we're gonna to make you the, the sole purpose. We're, we're going to sacrifice our needs, and we're going to magnify you. Okay, that, that's what this became. And as, as we continue, and as they did, they, they would expect God to intervene in a powerful way as they submitted themselves to him. And as we continue through the Old Testament, we see more and more this correlation between fasting and repentance, kind of they merge together, okay? And they represent one another. And it's almost to say that the Jewish people, but, I mean, what's crazy is as, as they would do this, as they continued fasting and praying, God would respond in, in powerful ways, but it's almost to say that the Jewish people understood to just say, sorry, God messed up, sinned. It, it didn't quite emphasize the contrition in their heart produced uh, from the disgust and sorrow over their own sinful nature, their need for God, and their overwhelming desire to be restored into right relationship with him. So it simply said they didn't want to just say it, they wanted to display it, right? 
They, they didn't want to just say it. They, they made a big scene. They wanted God to know we are going to humble ourselves. We are going to reframe. We feel legitimate sorrow about our brokenness. We understand we're unfit, but we still, regardless of our brokenness, we desire you to intervene. So what they did is instead of ask for forgiveness was humble themselves, deny themselves, right? Fast, they would pray, seek God to show their seriousness of their need for his intervening. And time and time again in the scriptures, we see the Lord responds to the fasting of his people in a powerful way. Y'all still with me? Am I losing anyone? You can be honest. It's okay. This, This stuff's pretty deep, but I think it's interesting. So what we find is fastly, fasting is, is closely related with repentance and mourning over sin, sorrow over sin, sorrow over my brokenness. And what we see is, re- what, what we find out, that really boiled down, made, made really simple, is, re- is repentance puts us in position to receive. And this will be a principle that is common throughout the rest of the scriptures. So if you're taking notes, I I would maybe write that down. I would consider that that repentance places us in a position to receive from God. And the Jews of the Old Testament, they understood that. So I don't know if it's just me, but I'm hoping that my courage to confess is contagious to you. Um... I think I've been all too satisfied to, at times, in terms of repentance, to just say it and not display it. God, I'm sorry, I'll, n- I'll never do that again. I... Tuesday rolls around and here we are. You know, when Jesus, when Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites, he's actually talking about the religious leaders in Matthew 6 and they would, they would make it you know, known that they were fasting and they wanted to appear spiritual. And, oh, I just, it's so hard fasting. So what Jesus says to his disciples is when you fast, you know, he basically says, take a shower, put on your cologne, look good, look good. Don't let anybody know because this is between you and God. Even though you're suffering on the inside, it's a filter for, for your intentions. And he's calling out the Pharisees in that moment because they were just saying it. They were, they were just showing it, but the, but the heart wasn't really there. Yeah, yeah, they, they showed it, right? But there, there was no heart change behind it. Sometimes I can't help but wonder, church, are we content to just tell God we're sorry with our mouths but say something else with our actions? I think, I think sometimes when we think of repentance, we think repentance is we come down here, we say sorry, we're, we're good, we get up and go out and go back. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen again, it doesn't happen again. Matter of fact, I have an illustration actually this morning of, of what I think sometimes the American church, how we view repentance. Check out this video really quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
you, you watch it. You know, we, we kept showing, we kept, we kept showing Jazzy, those two girls are, are living in our house right now, and we kept showing Jazzy that video, and every time we show her the video, the part where she knocks over Sissy, she would belly laugh. Every time. And then I come around, I, I come around, you know, at the end of the video, she goes, Sawi. Five minutes later, I come back around, and she is purposely knocking over Sissy because she thinks it's funny, and she, she thinks it's fun, and she's enjoying it. Sawi. Yeah, five minutes later, she's back to pushing down Sissy because it was fun. Sawi. Yet the relationship is toxic. We keep failing sexually, right? Yet we're unwilling to move out of our boyfriend or girlfriend's house. Sawi. Yet we go back and we visit the website when nobody's home. Sawi. Yet we make the same trip to the same gas station to buy the same amount of alcohol, to drink the same amount that we did last weekend. Right? You fill in the blank, man. Sawi. We just... Church, are, are we content to just say it but, but not display it? I think the church might be confused or maybe even deeper than that. Maybe, maybe we've been deceived into believing that I repent is something I say. It's something we say instead of something we do. I think we, we, we might be a little deceived in this area. I, th I think we've been deceived into believing that repentance is a continual feeling rather than a continual action. What's rather convicting is to discover what the real definition of repent means. But I think it's important for us to look at this word repent. Y'all still with me? Scaring anybody away? Can we, can we talk about truth in the room even when it's a little uncomfortable? Come on, this is, and this is, I want to lead the way and say that my repentance has not looked like biblical repentance. My repentance has looked like Jazzy's repentance a lot of times. But what did John the Baptist mean when he said, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near? What did the disciples say? What did they mean when they went out and they told everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God? What, what did Mark 6, in Mark 6, 12, right? When they go out and they tell everybody, repent and turn to God. What did Paul mean when he's talking to King Agrippa and he says that I told all people that they must repent and turn to God? What did Jesus Jesus, the guy, right? The one we worship, the one we celebrate, the one who carries most weight in our lives, the things, the person and man we were created through and for. What did he mean when he said, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near? Believers, we've been called to repent. It is no secret. This was the message of Jesus, right? We've been called to repent and turn to the kingdom of God, turn from our sins. I think it's imperative for us to re receive revelation of what repentance really is this morning. The literal definition of the Greek word for repent meant to change one's mind for the better, to heartily amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. Abhorrence is, is the key word there. So I, I had to look it up because I didn't know what it meant, truth, truth be told. I even had to write out how to pronounce it appropriately. But th this is what it means to feel repulsion or, or disgusted loathing. 
So to repent is I once loved this and took part in this. I once gave my, now I am absolutely disgusted and repulsed by this. This is, this is, this, it is a change of mind to what I desire, what I consider, what I give myself to, what I, what I think, what I look at, what I take part in. This is repentance. It's not just, sorry. To repent is to loathe the sin that I once loved. To think of sin as repulsive and to instead fix my eyes, give my heart and devote myself to that which is good or maybe better said to that whom is good. So if I'm going to turn away from something, if I'm going to change my mind, I have to take my mind off of this, place my mind onto something else. There's something we have to turn to and we should turn it to that whom is good. Man, I, I, I want to say this. I'm not coming down and, and berating you. Like, I, I want to have these conversations because I love you guys. And I, honestly, I mean, I'm, you got to keep in mind, I'm not reading this like I have it all figured out and I'm perfect too. I'm reading this. This is convicting for me. And, and maybe even some of like the examples that we've talked about, you're sitting in the room and you're like, yeah, that's where I'm at, Pastor. Oh, you think I'm this miserable, nasty person. It's like, no, join the club, man. We are miserable, nasty people in, in spiritual form. And that is why we've been called to repent from the way that we once lived. And this is a continual process that, that we're living out here. But this is what, what, what's been called of us. I, I don't want to miss it this morning. I don't, I don't want us walking out of this place. I, you know, I, I want us walking out of this place with, with, with a punch and a hug. I want us walking out of this place incredibly challenged. But I also want us walking out of this place incredibly encouraged. As many of us know, you know, this morning... You're sitting in the room, you probably have an idea that Jesus, the Son of God, he was the prophesied Messiah that the Jewish people of the Old Testament were expectantly awaiting. And there's multiple messianic prophecies to be found in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, right? So, so there, there's prophecies and there's things about the New Testament that we don't really find out about until we, until we get into the New Testament. Okay, so, so as we peer back into the Old Testament, we see some of those prophetic things. And, and specifically in the book of Isaiah, um, you know, it, we, we see the New Testament quotes the book of Isaiah 21 times. So the people in the New Testament refer back to Isaiah. And 17 chapters in the book of Isaiah contain prophetic references to Jesus which means hundreds of years, I think my timeline might be off, but 700 years before Jesus came to earth, people were writing about Jesus and the things he would say and do because the author is the Holy Spirit. But there's a specific verse out of Isaiah I want us to hone in on. So if you had your finger in Isaiah 40 or you already had your Bible open, we can go back to Isaiah 40. Let's look at it. And then I want to get into Matthew 3. Um, and we're going to read all of Matthew 3 this morning. So maybe you can put your other finger in, into Matthew 3 because we'll be there in just a moment. But Isaiah 43, it says this, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So maybe on site we read this 
Maybe the verbiage is a little confusing to us. We don't really understand what this verse is saying. There's parts of it that sound somewhat encouraging, but, but it doesn't, I don't know that necessarily seems to carry much significance to us. But this is where things get wild. Again, Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Well, this portion of scripture. Here's where I'm physically showing you or verbally showing you this morning of where we see that concealment being, being revealed in the New Testament. And in that moment, that passage is revealed in Matthew 3. So let's look at Matthew 3 here. And uh, we're going to read 17 verses out of Matthew 3, but y'all love the Bible, right? Come on, Bible's good. Amen? amen. Tammy Hamilton, I saw you back there. You didn't say amen. You better say amen, girl. I can see y'all. Let's read Matthew 3. Pray for Tammy Hamilton. (laughs) You need to love God's word, okay? In those days, Matthew 3, verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And then it quotes Isaiah. It says, the voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then it tells us a little bit about who John the Baptist was. He's one of the more interesting characters in the Bible. Check this out. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that these stones God can raise up children for, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And it continues. John says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. There's that word again. But after me comes one who's more powerful than I am. There's someone coming after me who's more powerful than I am. Whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. And he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Come on, are you grateful to be a part of a church that doesn't just preach the sexy stuff? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So John here, he's addressing the Pharisees and really what's happening, the Pharisees are looking down upon John and the work that he's doing, the kingdom work that he's doing, but he's saying to the Pharisees, you think that you're just right because of your heritage. You think you're just right because of your ethnicity. You think you're just right because of uh, of how you were born and the people that you're part of, but he's saying even you need to repent. And then all of a sudden, here John is, this wild boldness that he possesses, Jesus rolls up on the scene as John's baptizing. Let's look at it. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I, I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be now so it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. 
And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. And John's just standing there baptizing Jesus like, what is happening? I mean, what an incredible moment. Now, there is a lot to unpack here. This is a series within itself. You know, I, I can't unpack a full scripture, so, but, but it's obvious we catch a clear picture that God's judgment is coming to separate good and evil for eternity. We see that in John's message. We see God the Father declare Jesus his son with whom he's well pleased. We, we see that in this moment. But... What I want to hone in on here is we watch the prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled in John the Baptist being, being this forerunner before Jesus, right? But as I look at these two scriptures, as I, as I read through this story, I am embarrassingly want to admit that I've, I've always read it wrong. Or I guess I didn't read it wrong, I just didn't read it in its entirety. So back to Isaiah 40 really quick. I want to take you guys on this journey with me. What time is it? 10 a.m.? We might go a little over today. That's totally fine, though. Y'all, y'all good? Y'all with me? Isaiah 40, it says this. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together from the mouth for, or, or, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah gets a message from God, writes it down. This is what God has spoken through him. And then we see in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. This is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Make straight paths for him. So I know I've, I've read those things three times and but, but I've always read these passages and compared the, these, this concealment and revealment, this fulfillment of prophecy. I've always seen it. I've sat down with people, discipling them, taking them through the Bible, re reading the Bible with them. And I explained that, yeah, John made a clear path for Jesus to come. He was the forerunner. He, he paved the way. He was the one who baptized Jesus. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness and he overcomes temptation. And, you know, and, and I've always read this, but, but what I always missed is what's actually being said is, is, is there's a man, there's a voice in the wilderness that has a message. It's not, I've always read it as this is what John did, but actually John is telling other people to do something. Does that make sense? So I always thought there's a voice in the wilderness, this man who eats locusts and wild honey, and he's going to prepare a way for, for Jesus as he comes. Now, he is the forerunner of Jesus, but really what's being said is there's a man in the wilderness who is going to tell you, prepare a way for Jesus. Make his path straight. He's telling others to do that. And that's what I've always missed. In Matthew 3, 2, but then I look at what John says, and John doesn't say that. Right? John doesn't say, prepare a way, make his path straight. 
But it told me that there was a voice in the wilderness that was going to say that. But what does John say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And, and here's, what I found in my, here's what I found in my study. In ancient times, specifically when the book of prophet Isaiah was written, it, it was common practice of Eastern monarchs or, or kings to send harbingers, to send messengers before them and, and to clear this, to clear if they were going to have to travel, they were to, to level hills, they were to fill in valleys, they were to clear out trees and bushes and big boulders, they were to go before and, and make a clear path because a king was coming. A king was coming, and a king was, was coming through, and they would go before, and they would remove things. They would remove the rubble and, and remove the things that would break open or that would hinder the, the travel or the entrance. Part of their job was to prepare things for the king that was coming. So when John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, this is a word picture that we're seeing. What we discover in the text is real preparation has to take place in our hearts. We have to clear the way for the way of the Lord to enter our hearts. And the only way we can prepare our hearts to receive our king is through repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Move the things that block the way of the king. Get them out of the way because the king is coming. Woo! Come on, that'll preach. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He's almost as smart and as spiritual as me. <laughs> he, he said it like this. I'm going to read it a couple times. It says, men's hearts were like a wilderness wherein there is no way. But as loyal subjects throw up roads for the approach of beloved princes, so were men to welcome the Lord with their hearts made right and ready to receive him. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it again. Men's hearts were like a wilderness. And what's so interesting is right after Jesus gets baptized, where, where does he go? And, and he overcomes who? Satan. It's so good, man. The Bible is so good, but let's just read. Men's hearts were like a wilderness, wherein there is no way, but as loyal subjects throw up roads for the approach of beloved princes, so were men to welcome the Lord to clear the way for the Lord with their hearts made right and ready to receive him. This is part of what fasting was intended to accomplish, a straighter path, less hindrances, greater access. So church, I, I, I wanna ask you as we consider making straight paths for the Lord, as we consider repenting for the kingdom of heaven is near, the king is coming, what do we need to repent of? What is blocking the path? What, are we, what do we need to change our mind about? What are we consuming? My answer, but, but now I understand this is where it gets dicey because it's like, so are you saying this is, this is work-based? I gotta, I gotta do things to get Jesus in, in living in my heart. And you know, maybe you're thinking like, is, is repentance something we have to do before we can come to God? And I would say that my answer is yes and no. Repentance, you can write this down. Repentance does not describe something we must do before we come to God. It describes what coming to God is like. Ooh. 
Repentance does not describe something we must do before we come to God, but it is instead what coming to God is like. Jesus, I, I love you. I want more of you. I'm making a way you are invited into my life. I am removing the things that are not of you that will hinder, right? This is, this is, this is the word picture that, that John's laying out. This was the word picture that, that the disciples were, were set when, when, they, when the disciples said repent, when Jesus himself said repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It describes what coming to God is like. At the end of Luke, we see Jesus, he's been crucified, put in the grave, resurrected, and Jesus is, is walking around because he's not dead, he's alive, right? We'll talk about it on Easter. <laughs> Y'all coming to Easter? Yeah. Good. So Jesus um, ha- has this moment where he just kind of walks through this wall and ends up in this room with all his disciples and everybody's like, what is happening? And that's where this, this I, I pulled this passage from, Luke 24. I'll give you guys a second to turn there with me if you've got your Bibles. Jesus shows up. He's, he's, he's back from the dead. He's alive. Luke 24, verse 45, it says this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. That's all happened right before your eyes. New Testament, concealed. Old Testament, concealed. New Testament, revealed, right? It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. I'm bringing this thing to a close here, okay? It would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. See, repentance can be an incredibly scary thing when we think, oh my gosh, I gotta act right. I gotta stop doing that. I gotta get all these things out of my life. But God is so good that he has given you a helper. God is so good that he has filled you, joined your spirit with his spirit and given you power to live a life to honor and glorify him. God has filled you with his own presence to say, yes, but I'm gonna help you prepare the way. I'm, going, I'm gonna get in this with you, right? And, and he says, so don't worry. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you power to do this. Come on, are you grateful for a God who wants to inhabit but also help you? So I'm going to sew this, sew this whole thing up here. And then we can worship. Y'all ready to worship? Hebrews 5. So we talked about the high priest entering into the room for the sins of everybody, right? Everybody knew that they were broken and they were messed up and, and, and they needed a sacrifice. Come on, are you broken and messed up in the room? Is Pastor Mark the only one? Hopefully not. Can, can anyone be transparent? One person, praise two people, praise God. We need atonement because I got sin and junk. My, my path is not always made straight. I need something to cover my sins. While Jesus was here on earth, this is in Hebrews 5. But we don't have, you know, a temple we go to. You don't see me laying a goat up here and lighting it on fire. 
as your pastor or as your priest. So who's our high priest? Who's making the sacrifice for us? We find out in Hebrews. Verse 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cry and tears to one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. But, but check this out. Verse nine, in this way, God qualified him, God qualified Jesus as a perfect high priest. And he himself, as the sacrifice, as the sacrificial lamb, right? He became the source of eternal salvation through those who what? Obey him. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.